Well, good morning, everyone. Hope you had a great Thanksgiving. Uh, I know we did with our family. And uh, also remember we uh, had a great time last weekend, this time last week when we had our Thanksgiving dinner here at the church. It was great to have such a large group of people and lots of good food. Uh, Mark and I were talking about some things that we are thinking for, looking forward to next year that we might do a little bit differently. As you all know, we have people sign up for uh, cooking turkeys, and we have people sign up to, to cook dressing. And next year, we think it'd be real important to have people sign up to cook some hot homemade rolls. Somebody graciously gave me a whole stick of butter, and would you believe I did not have a single hot roll to put that butter in? I think that's a travesty, and so we're going to have to do something to, to change that next year. But uh, this time of year really is significant. We... we say it so it's almost trite, but we do need to take some time to really appreciate with thankful hearts all that that God has given us. And sometimes the Lord puts things in our path that allows us to to appreciate those things a little bit more. I bet if you ask those who recently returned from El Salvador, having dug a well for a village in that area, that they appreciate the clean water that comes out of their faucet every single day without any effort of their own, right? Right? If you've ever been and served the needy at uh, places like Lubbock Impact or those who uh, uh, are, don't have a home or, or food to put on the table, when you sat down to have that hot Thanksgiving meal with a roof over your head, uh, you probably appreciated it a little bit more, didn't you? We need to stop every once in a while and just think about the things that God has given us graciously as a gift and, and be thankful for those things. And this morning in particular... I want us to take a little bit of a departure from our study of Colossians, which we'll pick up next week. And and this morning, I want us to think specifically about the gift of God's grace that has been bestowed upon every single one of us, whether we realize it or not. But let's stop and just appreciate the significance of what we've been given. And and in order to do that, I want us to to look at a very familiar story, the story of, of Ruth. The story of Ruth is essentially a story of grace. And when we read this story together, I want us to consider Ruth's story as our own. I want us to appreciate what she has been given and realize that the same is true for us. And that's where we're going to focus our attention on this morning. So before we do that, let me open our time in prayer. Father, as we come to you this morning, I pray that we would leave here with thankful hearts. If that's not our attitude when we arrived, perhaps because of uh, some of the things that have gone on during what typically is a joyous time, sometimes it's, it's heavy, it's hard. It brings back some difficult memories, um, loved ones that we miss. And, and so I just pray that this morning we are able just to appreciate the, the daily moment-by-moment, minute-by-minute gift of grace that we receive from you. And maybe that would lift our hearts and allow us to, to just be blessed by what we have received as a gift from your hand. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So if you would, turn to Ruth, chapter 1. Look at Joshua. It's early in, in the Old Testament. Joshua, Judges, if you'll find Ruth. And I want us to, to look at this great book together. I'm going to start in chapter 1, verse 1, and 
And the reason is because the first two verses give us a tremendous amount of information that, that sets the context within which this book was written. So if you would, turn to Ruth chapter 1, verse 1, and read with me. It said, Now it came about in the days when the judges governed that there was a famine in the land. And a certain man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the land of Moab with his wife and his two sons. And the name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Machlon and Kilion, Epaphrodites of Bethlehem in Judah. Now they entered the land of Moab and remained there. So in two verses, we have a tremendous amount of information. We learn about an Israelite family who lives in a town of Bethlehem during the time of the judges in the midst of a famine. We know from our history of the Bible that the time of judges was not a happy time in the time of Israel, was it? In fact, it was a time of of deep spiritual poverty, of tremendous moral decay. And then on top of that, you throw in a famine where food was scarce. So as a result, this Israelite family made the decision to go to a place called Moab, about 50 miles away from where they currently live. Very likely to to seek some refuge and to find food that they did not have in the place where they lived. Now, one of the things that I find interesting, when I read chapter 1, verse 1, it says that their intent was to sojourn to the land of Moab. Now, when I read that word sojourn, what it tells me is that this was a temporary visit. They were not intending to stay. This was something that they were going to go to provide for their needs during a time of famine and then return home. But at the end of verse 2, it says, Now they entered the land of Moab and remained there. (laughs) Apparently their plans changed. And very likely it was due to what we read in the following verses where the two sons took on Moabite women as wives. So now they had settled in to establish families, and this had become their new home. Now, as we read that and understand that context, it's important to take a step back and realize the history that has preceded them as it relates to this place called Moab and the history of the Moabite people. You see, the Moabites did not exist until Sodom and Gomorrah. You may remember the story of Sodom and Gomorrah where Lot lived there with his family. This was a a terrible, evil city involved in all kinds of moral depravity. And God's judgment came upon that city. But before he uh, cast down fire upon Sodom and Gomorrah, he told Lot and his family, he says, you guys need to get out of here so that you can be saved. And so Lot went to his daughters and to their husbands and said, we've got to leave. Well, the daughters were willing to go with him, but the husbands said, ah, we don't believe it. Nothing's going to happen. So they stayed back. Lot's wife did go, but as she was leaving the city, she disobeyed the instructions of God. She looked back, and she too was lost her life, turned into a pillar of salt. And then the city of Sodom and Gomorrah, as we know, was completely and utterly destroyed, leaving Lot and his two daughters, who at this point in time now take refuge in a cave. The daughters begin to realize the significance of the situation that they're in. They are now widows without any children. And they come up with what is a sinful plan. 
and that is to have relations with their father, to commit the sin of incest so that they might have children to carry on the family name. And they do. They have two sons. One of them would become the people of the Moabites, the other the people of the Ammonites. As you read throughout the Old Testament, you'll find that the the Moabites and the Ammonites were common enemies of Israel. In fact, when the Israelites were leaving Egypt and traveling through the wilderness and passing through the land of the Moabites, who had now uh, become a whole tribe and nation in and of themselves, they wouldn't let them pass through. They said, you can't go through here. We also know the story of the king of Moab who happened to pay a seer by the name of Balaam. You remember this story? So he pays Balaam to put a curse on the Israelites. Well, Balaam's intent was to do so until, very literally, his donkey talked him out of it. And he ends up putting a, giving them a blessing instead of a curse. But one of the things that Balaam did do when the king of Moab found out what had happened and was infuriated by this, he said, let me tell you something. Balaam said to the king of Moab, here's what you need to do. Send the Moabite women over into the Israelite people and let them entice them into marriage and they will then follow them into the idolatry of the Moabite people. So that's what they did. And guess what? It worked. The Moabite women came in, enticed the Israelite men. They joined with them in marriage against the law of God and enticed them over into the Moabite idols and gods that they served. And as a result, a judgment of God came upon the people of Israel and a plague went throughout the land. And before it was all said and done, 24,000 Israelites died because of their compromise. That's the history of the Moabites and the Israelites. And as a result, there was a clear line drawn in the sand as Moses speaks the law to his people. You don't have to turn there. Just listen to this. This is in Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 3. This is Moses speaking to the people of Israel. Listen to what he says. It says, No Ammonite or Moabite shall enter the assembly of the Lord. None of their descendants, even to the tenth generation, shall ever enter the assembly of the Lord. Because they did not meet you with food and water on your way when you came out of Egypt. And because they hired against you Balaam, the son of Beor, from Pethor of Mesopotamia, to curse you. Nevertheless, the Lord your God was not willing to listen to Balaam. But the Lord your God turned the curse into a blessing for you because the Lord your God loves you. You shall never seek their peace or their prosperity all your days. A very clear line has been drawn. The law of Moses forbid anyone from either of these nations to enter into the assembly of the Israelites for no less than the next ten generations. There is to be no peace, no prosperity between these people groups. So that's the history, the context of of the story of Ruth. And so they are in this foreign place that was rejected and, and, and living in the land of Moab, having engaged in marriage with these Moabite women, knowing the history that had taken place with Israel. And things go from bad to worse. Look at verse 3 in chapter 1. It says, Then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. 
And she was left with her two sons. And they took for themselves Moabite women as wives. The name of the one was Orpah. The name of the other was Ruth. And they lived there, among, uh, lived there about ten years. Then both Machlon and Kilion also died. And the woman was bereft of her two children and her husband. So they lived in the land of Moab, and not too long after they'd settled down to make that home, Elimelech dies, Naomi's husband. And not too long after that, the two sons die, leaving Naomi and her daughters-in-law as widows. Naomi makes the decision to, to return to Israel. The reason she does so is because she is a widow in a foreign land, and there's no way that she can survive among a people that are not her own. So she decides to go back to Israel, and for the same reason, she tells her daughters, you stay here among your people, because if you come to Israel, you're a foreigner in that land, and the chances of you surviving are not good. And so you stay here with your people, and I'll go back to Israel with mine. That was the instruction that she gave to her daughters-in-law, and this was the decision. Look at verse 14. And they, the two daughters-in-law, lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. When it says Orpah kissed her daughter-in-law, or mother-in-law, it was intending to communicate this was a kiss of goodbye. A a sorrowful time to say, I'll stay and let you go. But it says that Ruth clung to her. Her decision was different. She was unwilling to stay back. She cared for, loved her mother-in-law, and she clung to her to her there's a word that is used throughout the book of ruth it's a hebrew word called chesed you actually say it with the back of your throat chesed it's a great word it means loyal love and that loyal love is seen throughout the book of ruth and none more clearly than the example that we find in ruth we see that being described in verse 16 look at this verse 16 this is what ruth said ruth said Do not urge me to leave you or turn back from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. That's hesed. Loyal love. Where you go, I go. Where you lodge, I lodge. Your people will be my people. And this is significant. Your God, my God. This is a decision of faith on the behalf of Ruth to say to her mother-in-law, Naomi, I'm going to leave my people. I'm going to leave the refuge of this place. I'm going to leave the idols and the worship of this people. And I am turning to you and to the God of Israel as the God I serve. This is a significant decision at great cost and at great risk to go into a foreign land as a widow. And so they returned to, to Israel, back to Bethlehem, where they were originally, or at least Naomi was. And they began to try to get their lives together, these two widows living with one another. Look at verse 20. And she said, this is Naomi, said to them, Do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, which literally means bitter. For the Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. I went out full, but the Lord has brought me back empty why do you call me naomi since the lord has witnessed against me and the almighty has afflicted me so naomi returned and her and with her ruth the moabitess her daughter-in-law who returned from the land of moab 
And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Ruth makes it clear, or excuse me, Naomi makes it clear that the condition of her heart. She says, I may be looking at you standing alive, but I am dead on the inside. I left full with the family that I was thankful for, and I am home and empty because they are all gone. It gives us an indication of where her heart is. The other thing that we see in that verse 22 is that there is a term applied to Ruth that is given all throughout the story of Ruth. She is Ruth, the Moabitess, from the town of Moab, as if you had to say that because she's a Moabitess. The author wants to make it clear, do you remember the history here? And do you understand Ruth does not belong? That's why it's repeated the way it is. Ruth does not belong. And so they do what they can to survive. Uh, look at chapter 2, verse 1. Now Naomi had a kinsman of her husband, a man of great wealth of the family of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth, the Moabitess, there it is again, said to Naomi, Please let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after one in whose sight I might find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she departed and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the portion of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the family of Elimelech. See, gleaning was actually a provision made by the law of Moses given to the people of Israel. And essentially what it said was when you own land, you could harvest all the land that was yours, but you had to leave the outside border so that people who were poor or foreigners in the land, especially during times of famine or hard times, could then come and glean and harvest out of that which you left so that they could have something to provide for their daily needs. It was a gracious provision of the law, and Ruth really fit both categories, didn't she? She was both poor and she was a foreigner. And so she gleaned from the land. Now, I find it interesting when the Scripture says, and she happened to come along to the portion of the field that belonged to Boaz. Oh, what a coincidence. <laughs> No, not really. The author wants to make it clear and for you and I to understand that this, this person, this, this Ruth the Moabitess, came along the land that belonged to Boaz who happened to be a relative through Elimelech. And this is not a coincidence. She is in fact living in the realm of God's grace even as a foreigner in the land of Israel. And God is directing her and taking the steps to bring her to a place of redemption. We learn a little bit about Boaz in this chapter as well. I, I think we see some of his character being evident. Look at verse 4. It says, And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem and said to the reapers, May the Lord be with you. And they said to him, May the Lord bless you. And this is a very simple interaction between Boaz, the owner of the land, and the workers who are, are, are harvesting it for him. And we get the impression as we read through the book of Ruth that there is a close relationship between this landowner and these workers, which would have been unique in that land. You see, he was very caring of them, and they were very appreciative of him. There's a close relationship as they greet one another. And Boaz represents some of the, the character that we will see unfold in the rest of the story. We know that he's there often because look at the next verse. It says, Then Boaz says to his servants who were in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? 
He's been there uh, often enough to recognize that there are people who are gleaning him from the fields, but as he looks out, he notices, hey, wait a second, there's somebody different. I noticed somebody I haven't seen before. He's been there often enough, greeting his servants often enough, to realize something's different. So he asks about her, and they begin to tell her who she is. They explain that that's Ruth, uh, the daughter-in-law of Naomi. And apparently Ruth's reputation has preceded her. Look over at verse 11. And Boaz answered and said to her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law after the death of your husband has been fully reported to me. And how you left your father and your mother in the land of birth and how you came to a people that you did not previously know. And then he prays for her. Listen to his prayer. May the Lord reward your work and your wages be full from the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to seek refuge. You see, Boaz understands that this is a woman who has put her faith in the God of Israel. And what's interesting and one of the beautiful ironies of this story is that Boaz prays a prayer that he will become the answer to. He will become the answer to his prayer. So Ruth goes back and reports to Naomi all that has happened. And for the first time in the story of Ruth, we begin to see this bitter heart come to life. There's an element of excitement as she hears about what took place and who this interaction was. In fact, you can even sense it in the chapter 3, verse 1. Look at it with me. Chapter 3, verse 1. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, shall I not seek security for you that it may go well with you? And now, is not Boaz our kinsman with whose maid you were? Behold, he winnows barley in the threshing floor tonight. (laughs) As you read these verses, you realize she's excited. She's excited because she looks at this daughter-in-law, Ruth, who has been so loving and caring for her, and now she has an opportunity to return the favor to in some way extend that same compassion. There's some excitement with the possibilities. But but what Naomi now instructs Ruth to do has an element of risk involved. You see, the law of Moses allowed for what's called a kinsman redeemer. The kinsman redeemer is somebody who is a close relative to a widow. And when that widow uh, had land that... uh, was was a part of that marriage relationship and her husband dies she's not able to take care of that land on her own the closest relative could come and essentially rescue that land by keeping it within the family so that that lineage continues and if that widow happened to be childless he was also obligated to take her hand in marriage so that they might have children and that lineage could continue through the heirs of that family it's a kinsman redeemer and we learn that that boaz and elimelech all came their families came from the tribe of judah but the law prevented as we've heard in the history a moabite woman from having the light rights of being a true israelite which as i said earlier may be the reason that they stayed in moab to begin with (laughs) they probably realized what had taken place and they wouldn't return to Israel because there wouldn't be acceptance in the land of Israel for these Moabite women. 
So knowing the history, the risk was that Boaz could have been offended by this initiative taken by Ruth the Moabitess as he, she requests uh, him as a kinsman redeemer. But here's what's interesting. Perhaps the reason that Boaz was not offended was because he knew firsthand what it was like to be on the outside looking in. You know why? His mom was Rahab, the harlot of Jericho. The mother of Boaz was Rahab, the harlot of Jericho. Also a woman who would have been excluded from the Israelite community, but was protected because of her loyalty to God and to his people. You see, when Boaz looked at Ruth, he saw in her his own mother. But there was one major problem in what was progressing, and that is Boaz was not actually the closest relative. And here again, we see some of the character of Boaz surface because he could have kind of shuffled that under the carpet, (laughs) pretended not to realize that that was the case, hide the truth, if you will. But he knew what was true, and he was unwilling to do so. But he was very wise in what he did to address this issue. He didn't panic. The Scripture tells us that he went to the city gate, and that is significant because because at the city gate, decisions like this were made among the people at that place, the city gate. So that's where he went. And look at what happens. Chapter chapter 4, verse 1. It says, Now Boaz went up to the gate and sat down there, and behold, the close relative of whom Boaz spoke was passing by. So he said to him, Turn aside, friend. Sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he told ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. And I want you to understand what Boaz has just done. He's convened, essentially, a jury who was able to make the decision on the matter of concern on this issue. He called the closest relative. He called the ten elders. And he said, let's visit a little bit. Right? Look at what he says in verse 3. Then he said to the close relative, Naomi, who has come back from the land of Moab, he makes that point clear, has to sell the piece of land which belonged to her, her to our brother, Elimelech. So I thought to inform you, saying, buy it before those who are sitting here and before the elders of my people, and if you will redeem it, redeem it. But if not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one but you to redeem it, and I am after you. And he said, I will redeem it. So Boaz says, look, there's land that you can have as a kinsman redeemer. And I just want you to know that it's yours, but if you don't want it, I do. Okay? So the close relative says, oh, well, in that case, I'll take it. But he goes on to explain. Verse 5. Then Boaz says, On that day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you must also acquire Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of the deceased, in order to raise up the name of the deceased on his inheritance. And the closest relative said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I jeopardize my own inheritance. Redeem it for yourself. You may have my right of redemption, for I cannot redeem it. Do you see what he did? He realized that he had built up an inheritance to himself, right? He had accumulated a good amount of wealth. And if he were to take that land, he would add to that wealth. 
But with that land came the marriage to Ruth. And with that marriage came children. And with those children, he would then pass everything that was now his down to them. And he said, I don't want that. You can have it. And Boaz says, I'll take it. Look at verse 10. Moreover, I have acquired Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of Machlon, to be my wife in order to raise up the name of the deceased on his inheritance so that the name of the deceased may not be cut off from his brothers or from the court of his birthplace. You are my witnesses today. Those people he had called together could now confirm the decision. And look at what they said, verse 11. And all the people who were in the court and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, both of whom built the house of Israel. And may you achieve wealth in Epaphrata and become famous in Bethlehem. <laughs> they not only gave them their approval, but they blessed him, may, saying, May you become famous in Bethlehem. And boy, is that an understatement. <laughs> because as we read on, we find that Boaz and Ruth would become the grandparents to young King David. And that line would continue in a lineage that would reveal to us Jesus Christ, our Messiah. What a beautiful story of God's grace. See, Ruth had no right to be an Israelite. In fact, the law prevented her from receiving the blessing of God's people. She was outside the citizenship of Israel, a stranger to the covenants of promise, and without hope in a foreign land. She could only be rescued by God's grace. And it was, in fact, God's grace that directed her to Boaz, the kinsman redeemer, who of all people knew firsthand what it meant to be saved by the gracious hand of God. And so he turned around and did the same to Ruth that had been done to him and his family through his mom. He was the only one outside of the closest relative who rejected the opportunity, who was willing to consider all that was rightfully his, not as his own possession, but as an inheritance that he would willingly pass down to the children. He operated within the provisions of the law to redeem the life of another. What a beautiful story of God's redemption and His loving grace. But here's what's important. That's your story. That's your story. And here's why. You and I, we are Moabites. Maybe not direct lineage, but our plight is the same. We are Moabites. Let me show you what I mean. Turn to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11, and you tell me if this does not sound familiar. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11. Paul, writing to the Ephesians, says, Therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles, that would include us in this room, in the flesh, who were called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands. Remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, 
excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace, our kinsman redeemer, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of dividing wall. We are Moabites. We have no right to be a part of God's family. In fact, the law prevents us from doing so when it says that the wages of sin is death. And it prevents us from receiving the gift of God's blessing. We are outside of the covenants of promise, having no hope in without God in the world. The story of Ruth is our story. But Jesus Christ is our kinsman redeemer. He did for us what no one else could possibly do. And it was God's grace that led us to the cross. That is not a coincidence. The sacrifice of Christ is what is necessary for the forgiveness of our sins. And when we put our faith and trust in Him, His full inheritance becomes ours. That's His gift. It says in John chapter 1, verse 12, But as many as received Him, to Him He gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in His name, who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. You have been saved by grace through faith because of Jesus Christ, who is your kinsman redeemer, your only hope. Your salvation. The story of Ruth is your story. And as we think about that this morning, I want us to just finish up with these thoughts. The first thing, just in light of what we've talked about from the beginning, is, is for us to be thankful for God's grace. You may remember in our study of Colossians, that Paul says this, chapter 1, verse 12, giving thanks to the Father according to His glorious might, for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience, who giving thanks to the Father, who qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. For He delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sin. Give thanks for the redemption that we have in Jesus Christ. And let me tell you, there is a tremendous danger when we lose sight of the grace in which we live. I know that to be true because there's a passage in Romans. You don't need to turn there. I'll just read it to you. It says this. For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks. But they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. What that tells me is when we don't live in an appreciation a gratitude, giving thanks for the gift of grace in our lives, our heart becomes hardened by sin. And we turn away from that which has been given to redeem us. Maybe like that first relative, we reject the opportunity and we walk away because we want to keep what's ours. Be thankful for the gift 
of God's grace. And because of that, be willing to give grace to others. <laughs> I think that's why Boaz was so gracious to Ruth. It's because he had himself been a recipient of the gracious hand of God. They were rescued by God's grace. And the same is true for you. And so give to others out of the grace that has been given to you. That's why we read in our study of Colossians. What does it say? Forgive as you've been forgiven, right? Love as you have been loved. We read in 2 Corinthians, it tells us to to comfort others out of the comfort that we have received from God. We give out of the wealth of the grace that we have received. So be thankful for God's grace. Be willing to share God's grace. And then finally, live in the inheritance of God's grace. I want you to just think about this. How foolish, how silly, how sad would it have been if after all that had taken place and Ruth enters into this marriage with Boaz, if she went back to the field and continued to glean on the edges as a foreigner and one who was poor, when in fact the whole land was hers. How sad would that be? Well, the same is true for you and I. We have been given the fullness of the riches of Jesus Christ. How sad if we just glean around the edges, not appreciating the fullness of what has been given to us. And so I want to remind you this morning just a piece of what it looks like to be a child of God, what that inheritance entails. If you would, turn to Ephesians chapter 3. And we'll finish up with this. Ephesians chapter 3. Listen closely to your inheritance as a child of God. Ephesians chapter 3. I'll begin reading in verse 14. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives this name, that He would grant you according, here it is, to the riches of His glory to be strengthened with the power through His Spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend, here's your riches, with all the saints, what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God, Now to Him who is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, beyond all that you ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to Him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Amen? That is your inheritance. That's what it looks like. And God is calling us to live in the fullness of who we are in Christ from generation to generation to generation, so that we pass down to our children the grace of God that has been given to us because we live in it every single day. Be thankful for God's grace. Share God's grace. Live in the fullness of God's grace. Let me pray for our time. Father, I thank you for the time that you've given us this morning. And as we prepare to begin our Advent season... Um, I pray that we are reminded of the gift of grace that came to us in the person and work of Jesus Christ who humbled himself 
coming to us to show us what your love, O Father, looks like. For you demonstrated your love for us, even that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Your love was demonstrated on your cross, and your grace has been extended to all of us as an invitation to live in the inheritance of faith in him. So, Father, may we be that people who are thankful for that grace, who give that grace, who live in the fullness of that grace. And we pray this in the name of Jesus.